Well, I want to ask you to take your Bibles in just a minute and turn to the table of contents. It'll help some of you to get through the message. Uh, but uh, I want to thank, uh, while you're getting your Bibles out, I want to thank uh, these men who have been with us uh, this week who work the fields that God has called them to work. Uh, Tolly had to go back to uh, Baltimore for a very important meeting, and uh, Bob Bakke left today to go to a planning meeting for the Cry Out event, but Matt Lawson, who pastors uh, Story City Church in Burbank, and Tom Elliff and Daniel Simmons and Ken Jenkins have uh, again blessed us. And uh, I'm always, I told Matt the other day, I said, Matt, I did not listen to one message you've ever preached before I ask you to come. Because all I try to do is say, Lord, who needs to come? And who needs to be here? Because I didn't know, I didn't need to know what kind of preacher you were. I just needed to, for God to show me what kind of man you were. And uh, I'm grateful for our partnership with, uh, with his church and the struggles that they have in, uh, in a very isolated part of the world, Los Angeles. And, uh, and Tom uh, just always blesses us. And Ken... Uh, I don't know if I've heard Ken or Daniel preach a better message than they preached this morning. I mean, both of them were just, uh, just unbelievable uh, words from God. And so I, I want to ask you, if you would, in giving praise to God for his servants, would you join me in thanking God for these men and for their investment? been in a series the last uh, couple of weeks on God and Kings, when politicians led revival. And uh, there have been seasons uh, when God has raised up secular leaders, kings, presidents, prime ministers, who have led out in the move of God in their land and in their nation. And really, Second Chronicles 7.14 is kind of the the pivot verse, the paradigm for the entire book of Second Chronicles. So if you're in your table of contents, find Second Chronicles and go all the way to chapter 29. Um, there is an imperative in Second Chronicles 7.14 to humble yourselves. That is covered in the revival in chapters 11 and 12 under Rehoboam. There's an imperative to seek my face. That's covered in chapters 14 through 16 in the revival under Asa. There's a, an imperative to pray in chapters 17 through 20. That's covered under Jehoshaphat. And then uh, in this message, I want us to talk about Hezekiah and the word turn, which is covered in chapters 29 through 32. And then for those of you that are Sherwood members, we will look at chapters 34 and 35. Humble yourselves with Josiah on a Sunday morning. One of the most amazing movies uh, I've ever watched, because I love movies that are set 
in a historical context is a movie called The King's Speech. It won an Oscar. Uh, it's the story of King George VI, who had a very severe speech impediment. One biographer called him the reluctant king. He came to the throne in December of 1936 at a time when Great Britain was a world power. You have to understand, in 1936, one-fourth of the people in the world were under the influence of Great Britain. He had a voice that spoke to one-fourth of the world. And he came to the throne when his brother Edward VIII gave up the throne so that he could marry a divorced woman who was still married to her husband. And it was a big scandal, not in America. He was welcomed in America uh, as a very outgoing and progressive uh, man, but in his country he had to give up the throne. At that time, religion still played a major part in England. In fact, the broadcasts of C.S. Lewis were often heard during the Second World War. And in a speech in early uh, in World War II, King George VI said this, I believe from my heart that the cause which binds together my peoples and our gallant faithful allies is the cause of Christian civilization. In another speech, he said, let us then put our trust, as I do, in God and in the unconquerable spirit of the British people. During a season of great military setbacks, he called the people to a national day of prayer. Melvin Rhodes wrote about George's daughter. Although his daughter, Queen Elizabeth II, kissed the Bible at her coronation and promised to uphold its laws, successive British governments have progressively rejected the laws of God and replaced them with the laws of man. With the resultant breakdown of the family and consequent social and economic problems, it's not surprising that national decline has coincided with this rejection of godly values. You are aware that there are more mosques being built in England and in Great Britain than there are churches. And that now Christianity is basically unheard of in most corners of a place where once they saw great revivals. The revival under Hezekiah is one of my favorite revivals to study. It was a sudden revival. It was one of those instant moments when it seemed overnight the nation changed. Second Chronicles 29 and verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord. Now you need to always notice this when you're reading through Chronicles. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. David was not his physical father. But it always went back to David. Under the reign of David, when the nation was at its best. And in the first year of his reign... In the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, and he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Now, just stop right there for a minute. 
Here's a politician calling the priest to get their house in order. This is a politician who says, you men have let this happen under your watch, and you need to restore the house of God. You need to get things back like they're supposed to be, like God told us they were supposed to be, like we all know they're supposed to be. You need to get it back to that. Verse 5, then he said to them, listen to me, O Levites. Now, now listen, it should have been the Levites telling the king. Well, we got the king telling the Levites. What happened to these men that were called of God and set apart? Listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanliness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful. Now, there he's referring to the generation before him, including his own father. Our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So now look what happens. Not only is he called the priests to get their act in order, the politician is calling the people to repent. What a novel idea. What if, just at some point, a governor would stand on the state house steps and call his state to repent? What if a president and a congress would stand on the steps of the Capitol and call our nation to repent? Well, first of all, that's not politically correct. It wasn't politically correct when Hezekiah did it. But he did it anyway. Verse 8, Therefore the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword. And our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. He says, this is what my priority is. I'm going to make a covenant with God. And we're going to begin at the house of God. We're going to begin where worship to the living God is to take place. Now remember... Hezekiah is a good example that you do not have to be born in a godly home to be a godly person. When I was in youth ministry, I can tell you some of my best young people, their parents didn't go to church. And some of my worst kids, their parents were at church all the time. You don't have to be born in a godly home to be a godly person. You don't have to use that as an excuse. Now here's, here's a young man, Ahaz is his father, who poisoned the spiritual life of the people. He had led the people to worship idols. He had led them to sacrifice children. He had led them to make sensuality acceptable. He had embraced Baal worship and licentiousness. And here's a politician who diagnoses the spiritual problem and aggressively attacks it. In his first month, he doesn't say, now, we need to rebuild the army. We got to get people back to work. We've got to restore the economy. We've we, we got to 
we got to, got to do this and we got to do that. We got to rebuild this and we got to fund this and, and we got to fund that. He says, hey, first thing we're going to do is we're going to get this temple cleaned up and we're going to go back to worshiping God. That's the first thing on his agenda. That's his first priority. In other words, nothing else matters until we do this. Until we get this right, all these other things don't matter. His father, 2 Chronicles 28, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. So in verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 28, God handed him over to the king of Syria. Let me just tell you something here. The greatest threat to our future is us. The greatest threat to our future is us. Because we don't think that the first thing that needs to happen in this nation is for the house of God to be restored and for worship to be what it is supposed to be and for the honor of Christ to be what it's supposed to be. In verse 19, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz. He was very unfaithful to the Lord. Let me ask you just a question to consider could it be that the Lord is about to humble us? Could it be? Is it possible? The Lord is about to humble us. Verse 19 of chapter 28 said there was a lack of restraint or he cast off restraint. The word there means to make naked or to totally loosen. In other words, no holes barred. Everything's okay. Everything's legal. Everything's, we'll legalize everything. You know, you go talk to people in Colorado and ask them what legalizing marijuana's done for that state. It's gone absolutely nuts. But we legalize gambling because if we legalize gambling, then, then we're going to get money from the lottery and that's going to help our education system. Tell that to the people in Georgia. We bought that lie. Oh, if we just sell alcohol all the time, that's going to make our, our community better. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. We legalize this if we, if we give everybody rights because 1% of 1% of people say, well, I need to have the rights of everybody else. And so we redefine marriage to appeal to a few rather than saying, I'm sorry, uh, God designed, created, and defined marriage we don't get to change that. So here's a king who says, if we want God's blessings, we're going to get back to doing what God says. The way we do that is getting in the word of God. Wilbur Smith said this, it seems as though economically, socially, domestically, in the home, in business, in the nation, throughout the world, men have thrown aside all restraint and live, act, think, and plan though there was no universal law of recompense, as though men would never be punished for breaking the law of God. Sixteen years of disastrous leadership under his father. Now, during that time, three prophets had been ministering in the nation, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. And we know from their letters that they have been plowing the ground for revival. They have been calling the people back to God. They have been pushing the people to look at the sin in their own lives 
and Hezekiah comes on the scene. The temple is closed. The services have been discontinued. The furnishings have been thrown away. And his first priority is to get worship back to where it should be. They had become unfaithful, evidenced by their pagan gods. There is no better word to describe the American church than unfaithful. I mean, people in some parts of the world risk their lives to go to church. We have people in church in America, if there's anything else going on, they won't come. I remember Ron Dunn one year stood up at one of our Bible conferences and he said, he said, okay, it's this Wednesday night, last night of the conference. Uh, let's see, uh, uh, how many of you have been here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night? Raise your hand. So people raise their hand. He said, all right, let's just start over here. Now, why weren't you here? And it, what, what, what about you? Why weren't you? What, what, back there in the back, you didn't raise your hand. Uh, why weren't you here? You know what? We got members of Sherwood Baptist Church that hadn't darkened the door this whole week. Not the whole week. And they're going to show up Sunday, and I pray to God they don't know what church they're in. And I pray to God when they walk in this place, they're going, What in the world happened this week? Well, if you'd have come, you'd have known. And by the way, we're not backing up for you to catch up. You better start running because you're going to have to catch us. Listen, folks, when God's moving, he's not waiting for you to get on when you decide to get on. When he decides to move, he's going to move. If you say, well, you know, I had something else going on. It, it was real important at the time. I wonder, is it really our priority that we want revival that we want a work of God watching the insanity of God and reading Nick Ripkin's book there's not one person in the church in America that is worthy to wash the feet of anybody in the church in China not one we are not worthy to wash the feet of the persecuted church what we owe them is an apology for not being any more than we are. Amen. Ron Dunn used to say when he was asked, you think America will undergo judgment? He said, I really don't think so. He said, because we're not the stuff of which martyrs are made. But I want to ask you a question. Why would God allow most of the church in the world to undergo persecution and let a carnal church in America off the hook when we are not willing to live for that for which they are willing to die for. When we're not willing to be inconvenienced for that for which they give their lives for. So there's three things very quickly. First of all, remember this is about turning. Turning begins with obeying the Word of God. Turning begins with obeying the Word of God. Now, Every president since George Washington has sworn on top of a Bible, sworn on top of a Bible to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Which, by the way, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights and every law that was, this country was established on was established based on the Ten Commandments as a moral code of ethics and law. How in the world did Hezekiah, as a young man, have a clue what the Word said? I want you to listen to this very carefully. In fact, I, I just want to make an encouragement to you. 
write your congressman and your senator, state and national, and write your president and say, did you know what God says that kings need to do? This is coming up on the board. Deuteronomy 17, 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on the scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So what that verse tells us is that when you became king in Israel, and by the way, this was before the nation ever had kings, but God knew the hardness of men's hearts. And so he put a law in the law that said, if you are going to one day have a king, this is what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to handwrite the first five books of the Bible in the presence of the priest. That means they're sitting there watching him. Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Don't, don't leave that verse out. No, no, David, David, that says do not commit adultery. And when you do, you're going to remember you wrote that. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't, don't leave that. You know, you write it all. This is what worship in the temple is supposed to look like. This is what the tabernacle, how it's supposed to be built. These are how the feasts are supposed to be organized. This is what the Passover is supposed to be. All of this, you write it in the presence, and he will carry it with him all the days of his life. In other words, everywhere the king went, the scrolls, the first five books of the Bible, went with him. He was never without the word. There's an interesting thought. So that those who counseled him and those who listened to him and the priests around him would know that he was listening to and learning and reading and observing the law. So let me just give you a little insight here. What he said to the priest, what they needed to do, he got from the book of Exodus. What he said about apostasy was an awareness of the book of Deuteronomy. The references later to the Passover means he knew the book of Numbers. You know that book that we skip so we can get to the good stuff? You see, a man of the word cannot be deterred. If a man has the word in his heart, he cannot be deterred. He did not wait for the priests and Levites to tell him what to do. He knew the protocol. And the purification of the temple and the offerings all indicate that Hezekiah was very familiar as a 29-year-old man with the book of Leviticus, a book we also ignore. Revival always begins with a return to the Word of God. The laws of revival and God's blessings are clear and certain. God has never stuttered. They're clear. So if we're going to turn to God, if we're going to humble ourselves and seek his face and pray. If we're going to turn to God, we have to turn to the word. We have to renew our commitment to the word of God. Secondly, turning results in faithful worship. Turning results in faithful worship. You know, backsliding is about the best thing I do. Faithful worship. Walt Kaiser said, it consists of taking back our consecration to the Lord, leaving our first love for God, 
abstaining from regular and wholehearted devotion to God in worship and prayer and maintaining the outward forms of religion without the realities. So Hezekiah calls them back to corporate worship. He says, we're all going to do this. We're all going to gather and we're all going to worship the way God intended us to worship. Now, in Baptist churches, and when somebody moves to another church, you know, the, the, a Baptist church, they send and, and ask for the church letter. And just Baptist churches through, I don't know, for millenniums, I guess, you know, we always send a card that says, member in good standing. And typically what some pastors are saying, oh, thank God they're gone. <laughs> Can I tell you something? Some people that stay in church aren't members in good standing. A member in good standing, it means, means that when, it's, when you report for duty, you report for duty. You don't try to figure out how to get out of it. A member in good standing means whatever it is that, that we need to do to gather together, to corporately worship. And you, ought, you ought to hear Ken's message this morning and, and you ought to hear Daniel's message this morning. Because when we gather in the name of Christ, we do not gather in the name of Sherwood Baptist Church. We don't gather in the name of Michael Catt. We don't gather in the name of Baptists. We gather in the name of Jesus Christ. And that name ought to bring us together. I mean, what are you, what are you going to do? You know, you, you got people in your Sunday school class. You couldn't find them. The FBI can't find them. Even WikiLeaks can't find them. You, you wouldn't want to hack their email. I mean, nobody can find them. You know, what, what are they going to do when Jesus comes back for his bride and they're standing there going, uh, Jesus, uh, hey, you forgot one. Hey, 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 uh, Jesus, hey, uh, you know, 25 years, Sherwood Baptist Church. And somewhere in the clouds, there'll be a voice that says, I don't believe I know you. I don't think you're one of mine. Because every day of your life, you've denied me, except when it was convenient to show up for Easter and Christmas. Or when something was going on that you liked. You know, I, you know, I, I can't come back to church on Sunday nights. And, you know, Sunday, Sunday night's family night. That's because Sunday, Saturday, your God is football. Because you'd rather watch a football game, spend time with your family, and then you blame God for it. Hello. Ah, Sunday night's my family night. Well, not every church has Sunday night. I know they don't. And that's fine. I'm not going to die on the hill of Sunday night, but I'm going to tell you, when you get to heaven, God's going to say you should have been in church on Sunday night. You know why? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. When the body is gathered and you're not there, guess what? Something is missing in that body. Something is missing. The body can't function like it needs to function when the body's not all together. We all lose something when we are not all in it together. Chapter 29, verse 10, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel. The priests and the Levites began to clean up the church. So in chapter 20, and verse 23, they restored the altar. That's a good place to start. 
there's an altar in this church. And as long as I have anything to do with it, there will always be an altar in this church. And there will always be an altar call. Because God calls us to public decisions. Verse 24, they restored worship. <laughs> Notice, they restored the altar before they restored worship. Because at the altar is where we get right with God. Worship is where we celebrate what God has done for us. Verse 27, the song of the Lord also began with trumpets. And verse 28, while the whole assembly worshiped, the singers also sang and the trumpets sounded. Verse 29, they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshiped. Uh, chapter 30 and verse 6, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who are unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror as you see. Verse 8, now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. Assembling with the body is a sign of help. Here's why worship is important. Worship reminds us of truth, and it has a corrective influence on us. Worship has a corrective influence influence on us you know I, I get out during the week and you know I start griping about this and griping about that and griping about the people that don't use a turn signal and you know because they're not full of Jesus and you know and I am so I'm griping because they're not using a turn signal and use a turn signal and I come into church some smart aleck says something about the way we use our mouths I've had a corrective measure in my life. I've been griping all week, complaining all week, whining all week, moaning all week. And we start singing songs about praise to God. Worship has a corrective influence on us. When we get in worship corporately, it reminds us, I need to line up. I need to get in line. I need to get my head renewed and my heart renewed. I need to line up. When the church is not lined up with God, then it needs to correct its worship. Nobody saw anything wrong with the churches in Revelation until Jesus told them there was something wrong. I mean, if you'd have looked at five of those seven churches, they'd all said, you know, I don't know why we did not win Church of the Year last year. I mean, we had more potluck dinners than anybody else. You know, we, we had fellowships. We gave pizza out. I mean, we, I don't know why we didn't have Church of the Year last year until Jesus showed up. He said, you know, that, that's good. That's, that's real good. I like that. That's good. Uh, but I've got something against you. You've left your first love. Repent or else five times to seven churches out of the five. Five, he said, repent or else. When I, when I went to Ada, Oklahoma, the three Sundays before me, the interim guy had left, and so they had three different preachers preach the three Sundays before me. So the first, the third Sunday before I came as pastor, the guy stood up and preached out of revelation, you have left your first love. 
Second Sunday morning, guy stands up and preaches, says, the Lord has told me, uh, given me a word for this church. I know you're about to call a pastor. You have left your first love. Third Sunday before I came, guy got up to preach and he said, I'll tell you something, I could not get away from this passage. The Lord just drove it into my heart and I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation and I want to talk to you about the church at Ephesus that had left their first love. Now you think God was trying to say something to that church? And so one guy walked up to me on my first Sunday and said, you're not going to preach on church at Ephesus, are you? But it didn't take me but about two weeks in that church to realize they had left their first love. They were more in love with their committees and their system and their budget and their control than they were with Jesus. In some ways, they still are. When Jesus showed up, he said, repent. You know that Vance Havner was a mentor and a hero to me. He said this in 1972. It does a little good to wring our hands and lament the inroads of television, ball games, and other attractions on our church attendance. If we do not have enough vitality to compete with all of this, maybe it doesn't matter much whether we have our meetings or not. If the gospel means so little to us that it can be sidetracked, by every sideshow that blows into town, it wouldn't mean much if such people did gather to go through the hollow motions of a dead faith. We seem to be preaching and promoting something while most of the adherents wouldn't miss it much if they lost it. You know what? If we close the doors of this church tonight and never open them again, there are members of this church that wouldn't miss it. Oh, well. wonder what they're going to do with the buildings. I wonder if they'd sell me that playground equipment. I don't know what they're going to do with that big sports park out there. Who's going to buy a sports park with a 120-foot cross in the middle of it? I have to cut that thing down. Good luck. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't mean enough to us to do it, that it won't mean anything to us when we lose it. And by the way, we're just one generation from losing the freedom of worship and assembly. And if it doesn't start meaning something to us now, let's not whine and bellyache when we can't do it anymore. One last thing. Turning means I understand stewardship. Verse 31. Now that you, 29, 31, now that you have consecrated yourselves, in other words, they came first themselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. You see, if we ever get lordship right, we'll get stewardship right. Ernest Baker said, one sure proof that the work of God has little hold upon the people is the constant poverty of the churches. If the people gave accordingly to their means, proportionately and systematically, there would be no need for the energies and enthusiasm of church members to be diverted from the spiritual and soul-saving work for which they exist to the work of raising money. We brought a thousand missionaries home. 
not because Southern Baptist, 50,000 Southern Baptist churches don't have the money. It's because 50,000 Southern Baptist churches don't care whether the world's going to hell or not. We've cut back on the things we can do in the state of Georgia. Not because Georgia's more Christian than it's ever been. Because Southern Baptist churches in Georgia don't care that Georgia is going to hell. We've had to cut here. Not because Albany is more saved than it's ever been. But because we have disobedient church members. And so we have to spend time raising money. We have to give ourselves to trying to figure out how we're going to make this meet this and that meet that and, and get from here to there. Now, now, I'm like the old Scottish preacher. I would not harm thee for the world, but I'm about to shoot where you stand. <clears throat> I would like, I will, know, I will know when we are in revival. It sure would. I will know when we are in revival. When I don't have to beg and browbeat for the love offering. Now, you know, everybody's going to give tonight. We're going to take up an offering in a few minutes. Everybody's going to give tonight. You had that money Sunday. But you've been sitting on your blessed assurance and your wallet. You've been holding on to tonight. Well, I guess I ought to give. So if you knew you were going to give at Refresh, why did you delay obeying from Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and decide that on Wednesday you are going to obey? What did you miss God saying to you on Sunday that you would have heard if you'd have done what God told you to do? Can I tell you something? Every year at Refresh, I walk around with an 80-pound weight on my back, and it is the weight and the burden of trying to take an offering. I have never, in all the years we've done Refresh, I have never been able to walk into this place and not worry about the offering, not one time. Not once, not even tonight. Not one time have I not worried about it. I don't want to be embarrassed in what I give men of God who serve God faithfully and preach us the word. I don't want to be embarrassed when I say, this is all you're going to get. Because we're better than that, or at least I think we are. But if we've got to be begged and coaxed to do it, then I wonder if we really understand that stewardship and lordship go together. You say, well, I don't have much. Not what you have. It's you, you give, Manly Beasley taught me, you don't give out a reason. You get out, give out a revelation. I mean, I mean you, you just give what God tells you to give, and you watch God make it up, or God teach you to trust him. And, you know, one, one time, I just one, one time, just one time, Lord Jesus, before I go home, just one time, I'd like to get up on a Monday night at Refresh and say, folks, you have done so much that I know these men are going to be blessed by what you've done, and we're not even going to have to worry about taking Now, if you decide you want to give something, that's fine, but we're not even going to take an offering Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night because we've just done so much, and God's been so good and blessed. I'm going to tell you, we'll be in revival then. Anytime you look at that budget and it's behind, we're not in revival. Not when there are people in the world that have nothing who give everything. And we try to get it down to the nickels of what we will give. Verse 30, uh, chapter 30 and verse 8. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary and serve the Lord your God. All these commands of the word, the worship, and our wallet, stewardship, are tied to turning. If people are right with God, you don't have to beg them to study the word. You don't have to beg them to worship. And you don't have to beg them to give. When we're right with God, Martin Lloyd-Jones 
said, this is what God can do. This is what God has done. Let us together decide to beseech him, to plead with him, to do it again. Not that we may have the experience or the excitement, but that his mighty hand may be known and his great name may be glorified and magnified among the people. Would you pray with me? I want to ask you three questions. And then we're going to sing and then Tom's going to come. In a revived heart, in a heart surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, in a heart yielded to say yes to God, there's a turning, not just a humbling and not just a seeking, but there's a turning. The turning is what gets us across the river. The turning is what gets us toward the goal line. The turning is what moves us down the road where it's not just a, a, a four-day event talking about revival and then we wait to the next year to start all over again. So let me ask you, has there been a turning with the Word in your life? Are you hungry for the Word of God? The, the Word is described as milk and meat and honey and bread. It's a good meal. Man must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Is there a turning of the word? Is there a turning in your worship? Is worship optional for you? Is worship just if you like the song? Or if you like the message? Or if you like the people you're sitting around? Or is worship about Jesus and Him only? Have you quit worrying about what your voice sounds like and started thinking about what your heart looks like? Is there a turning in your worship? And is there a turning in your wallet? Do you know the joy of giving? Do you give joyfully? Do you give willingly or do you give grudgingly? Do you enjoy giving? And I'm not, I'm not just talking about giving to the church. I'm just talking about being a giver by nature. Just a giver by nature. Do you ask God for ways that you can bless somebody else? Because listen, all you're doing is taking money that God has put in your hand and you're just siphoning it on through. God wants his money in circulation. He doesn't bless hoarding, he blesses giving. If we want revival, there has to be a turning in the word in worship, and with our wallets. Now I'm going to pray, and then Ken Bevel's going to come, and then we're going to sing after that. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you would turn our hearts toward you, turn my heart toward you. Lord, let it be that we make a covenant in our hearts to seek the Lord to humble ourselves, to turn, turn from neglect of your word, turn from neglect of worship, turn from neglect of giving and stewardship. God, help us. 
to see that giving ourselves to other and lesser gods is to waste our lives, to waste our time and our resources. Help us to endeavor, as Ken talked about this morning, and to focus on Christ, as Daniel talked about this morning, and to pray for a move of the Spirit of God like Bob talked about. Help us to run this race until we cross the finish line with the one desire to see our Lord and Jesus face to face and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. For it's in Jesus' name, amen. Ken.